I am so excited for today's episode. Yes, today we have PhD student Suzanne Banks with us to talk about her special interest and current area of study, which is domestic terrorism. And as many of you may know from our very first episode, I had my own Columbine phase. So I'm very eager to talk to someone as knowledgeable as Suzanne. Yes, Suzanne is awesome. She's studying to be a historian and she's redefining the way we look at mass shootings in an academic context. Yeah, and she knows more about Tim McVeigh than I know about some of my exes. This episode needs a little historical context. Yeah, we we kind of dive right in. Basically, we talk a lot about the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing and its perpetrator, Tim McVeigh. Yeah, Tim McVeigh was a big inspiration for the Columbine shooters, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, who we also mention, I think, by first name a lot as if no, we know them. Like Tim, Eric, Dylan. <laughs> but basically, Eric and Dylan kind of idealized Tim McVeigh's anti-establishment mentality and thought that they could do even better than him. So he was like a driving factor to why Columbine kind of happened. He didn't like the government, blew up a government building. But it was because of Waco. Yes. Basically, Waco, there was like this fundamentalist cult called the Branch Davidians, and they had all these firearms and they got raided by the ATF, which is also known as the Department of Cool Stuff, the alcohol, tobacco and (laughs) firearms branch of the federal government. And there was this raid. There was a shootout. It was they burned the building down. Yeah, they the government burned the building of people down. The The whole cult. Yeah. Yeah. The whole cult went up in flames. Uh, And Tim McVeigh. I guess, found this particularly disturbing and a betrayal of government, as did most people. And he took it upon himself to um, go. I want to know exactly where he went and how many people. The Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building killed 168 people. Um, So, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about who covets the gun. Why do some extremists move to committing acts of terrorism? Why we're so fascinated by these people and their violence? How the mythology of this country kind of contributes to all of this and what needs to change about the academic conversation around these events. I'm Evangelia. And I'm Emily. And welcome to What's Gonna Happen. We're very excited to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. So we are mutuals on Instagram. We've been mutuals on Instagram for like a while, like years. And like... What drew you to each other's pages? I just like, I love her stories. She's like an expert in 90s era domestic terrorists, like Tim McVeigh. <laughs> I know the okay, surely that's not what drew you to me in the first place. I like to think that I just like... I wore cute outfits. I don't know. Yeah, magnetism and natural it, charisma. You're it like, was, nope, it was only the domestic It charisma. was only Timothy I mean, McVeigh. I came for Tim McVeigh and I stayed for Tim McVeigh. But you, you know, like... But the cute outfits are a bonus. The cute outfits were a bonus. And also, you know, like, you're really funny, knowledgeable. So why'd you give M the follow back? She's really fucking funny. Cute outfits. Thank you. Elaine Maxwell is like her Timothy McVeigh. She is. That's true. When you told me you had a crush on her, her real crime was cutting off her hair. So true. No, (laughs) Elaine Maxwell with long hair is so much hotter. Like nobody understands me. (laughs) I I dated this guy whose mom went to school with Elaine Maxwell in like England, which is like a lot of degrees of separation. I don't talk to this man anymore. (laughs) 
But I would go back and ask for more information because all I remember was that apparently she was a bitch. Yeah. I actually do have a theory that everybody in New York is at least six degrees of separation away from Jeffrey Epstein. Like, I do believe that you can... Six degrees of Kevin Bacon, literally everything. I think it's less than six degrees. Yeah, I mean, for me, it is. For me, it is. I know what the connection is. We're going to have to cut it out. (laughs) We can believe it. Yeah, (laughs) but my girlfriend's um, works in the... And so she knows and who are very close with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, and I know that's a connection. For sure. I was in a wax museum and um, Elon Musk was there. You met Elon? Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he was there. He was kind of gummy looking. It was definitely him. If I saw Elon Musk in a wax museum, like I wouldn't be sure if it was a wax figure That's or if it wha- was actually why I asked. Like, No, I'm kind of disappointed that like every single wax museum has like an evil man room and none of them have the guts to put like a wax figure Hitler in there. Yeah, it's so true. Wait, what Go wax figures are in the evil man room? Yeah, so the people it's in the evil man room uh, right now, at least at the Louis Tussauds in Niagara Falls, Ontario, it's like Joseph Stalin, Dracula, the Crypt Keeper, Charles Manson, and Vladimir Putin. And it's so funny because Vladimir Putin was, he's still wearing the lanyard that everyone else is wearing in the politician room. They clearly moved him in like the last year. Actively Putin is in there. Yeah, actively Putin is in there. They moved him down there. When he was bad. <laughs> After he invaded Ukraine, they moved. He did something you. bad. <laughs> but um, I just feel like the most evil men in history room is a little empty without um, the crown jewel. Okay, so you're in Scotland right now. That's where you're from. Um, that's where you reside. It's, uh, I'm not from here, it is where I live. I'm originally from Northern Norway, then when I was a teenager, I lived in Portland, Oregon. Then I moved back to Norway, did my bachelor's degree at the University of Oslo, then I moved to England for my master's, and then I moved here. Is there a lot of domestic terrorism in Scotland and Norway, or is it that you're just kind of like obsessed with us? Uh... (laughs) Well, I did like uh, <laughs> jot down a lot of notes about domestic terrorism in Scotland, but if you want me to throw them away, then no, no, I'm really no, curious. I would I, love to know about the domestic terrorism in Scotland. Yeah, I don't know much about what domestic terrorism looks like in Europe. Yeah, I um, I should start by saying that I don't know shit about British history. Like the stuff I know comes from my to. personal experience and like broad general knowledge, but. Um, Glasgow where I live is an interesting example because its culture is so steeped in the centuries old like Protestant Catholic sectarianism so it's essentially just like the whole city's culture is an extension of the troubles the troubles just never ended here and it's still like incredibly polarized there's like tension between Protestants and Catholics in Glasgow like today oh yeah yeah all of Scotland really is especially heated in Glasgow I was showing these Americans around here a few months ago and we were sitting in St. Mungo's Cathedral and I was saying how the Church of England, which is Protestant, gets points for remembering how to build cathedrals from when they were Catholic. And this girl goes like, (laughs) aren't Protestants and Catholics just different flavors of Christianity? Which I think it's hard for like non-British and Irish people to truly grasp how fresh those wounds are. Like... 4,000 people fucking died, and this is not that long ago. Like, the troubles ended in the 1990s. 
and some would say that it's still not over. The only thing is that, well, Scottish people don't have guns, so they have to resort to just like stabbing each other. And by God, they do. Yeah, I do know that about Europe, that they they don't have the same gun culture that we have in America. So there's like stabbings, acid attacks, like stuff yeah, but like acid that. attacks are so vile. I would rather. I'd get rather shot. be shot. Just do it. Just <laughs> yeah, end just it like all. yeah, get it not over not with. Face off. Yeah, and yeah, so here in Glasgow, we have a Catholic and a Protestant soccer team, and those people fucking hate each other. Like, that's how they, like, take out that leftover aggression. Um, well, better that than car bombs. No, because they will detonate a car bomb if, like, oh. their team <laughs> loses. Those fans are fucking crazy. Like, we don't even have those, like, political alignments with sports here, but they still burn each other's cars. It's true. We're really missing out by having all of our sports be like by state so that we can't ignite like geopolitical conflicts. So with you our think sports we should matches? have sports teams represent each country and then people based on how much they like each country can decide which team they're against and for? Yes. That's your idea. <laughs> yes. Okay. Isn't that what the Olympics is? Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's, you nailed it. We the Olympics. <laughs> I, well, I live in like a Celtic neighborhood. That's the Catholic team and the number of like team chants I've heard about just like let's kill the king and bathe in his blood and then you got like the orange that march awesome. which is like a Protestant like very like pro monarchy thing and the march is always going down outside my window every Saturday and it's all like let's kill all the Catholics and bathe in their blood and by the way yeah it's every Saturday and they're like practicing but I keep telling them like you know one song and you play two instruments and it's the flute and the drums and you're not getting any better I am so hungover right now please leave me alone (laughs) but yeah Europeans have this extremely reductionist way of viewing American mass violence and it's that there's so much violence because there's so many guns and if you sort of ask them to think critically about it the only other thing they'll say is like yeah it's because they're stupid and I'm like okay you're my professor you can't really say that (laughs) wow so that's like high level people who carry that belief yeah it's very classist I'd say because they're not thinking about like liberal coastal Americans they're always thinking about like poor uneducated underprivileged Americans that are like look they're so fat and stupid and they kill each other honestly I understand that mindset because since we don't live in rural America we are the liberal coastal Americans in question and I feel like a lot of people here also think like that we're not American we're in New York yeah no I grew up in Portland Oregon it's the same shit they're like oh yeah those fat idiots in the middle of the country that just shoot each other all day just like calling them names i don't think that's gonna work but um there is a complete ban on firearms in the uk because in 1996 there was a school shooting about 30 minutes outside of glasgow in this small village called dumblane there was this man who was i think um a Cub Scout leader or something. He was let go because he was a pervert. So he shows up to like the local elementary school and he kills 16 kids, first graders and the teacher and then himself. And after that, there was a complete ban on all firearms. I think they gave them like three years to hand them into the government. And British people have this view of like, we don't talk about Don Blaine anymore. We don't talk about what happened. We're over it because we had that firearms ban and we've essentially solved it. But 
I think that's sort of the wrong way to go about it and that we still need to understand like how did it get to that insane point of just like death and destruction in this tiny village in the middle of Scotland. It's such a small community. I was actually there last year. I tried to like go to the local history museum and be like, hey, this is what I'm studying. This is like what I'm working on. And they were like, oh, you can't talk about that here. Um, whereas if I'm in Columbine, Colorado, they all want to talk like... <laughs> They basically have a sign in the front that's like, this is where that shooting happened. Yeah, it's yeah, like Americans are way more approachable because they acknowledge that there is a problem. But isn't that because there's a problem like still going on? Oh, yeah. No, there is a problem. But Europeans act like they solved violence. Mm. It's also within the British, the British mindset to like repress everything. Like I feel like British yeah. people like keep things in just that's like a cultural thing for them. I don't know. So like, you know, I guess in America, we're more like open about our mass casualty events. Yeah, we're chill and real. Yeah. You're so chill about your mass casualty events. <laughs> but like people here are still plenty capable of finding new ways of killing each other. Like you've removed a means and, you know, made it less accessible, which good for you. But guns weren't, you know, the first part of your constitution here or a massive part of anybody's lives. So, of course, that was really easy. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, are there still mass casualty events in Europe in the same way, just like with different means? Like, are you more worried about being the victim of one of these events in the streets of Scotland or in the UK or Europe versus when you walk in the streets of America? You know, I was born in 1997. So I was among like one of the first kids to like start school after Columbine. So to me, growing up, I always saw that as like a thing I took for granted as, you know, it happens, but it happens abroad. It happens in the U.S. and you see it on like, I don't know, teen dramas set in the U.S. and stuff. So I was like morbidly curious about it and scared of it, but never perceived it as a real threat. And then when I was 13, um, the Norway massacre happened and that sort of like broke this illusion of safety or a whole country and really ushered in like a new age in, in Europe. Because that's what terrorism is. It's taking away that sense of safety in everyday life. Um, and after the Norway massacre, I don't know if you guys like remember it, but there was this right wing extremist. He acted alone. He um, parked a uh, truck bomb outside of government headquarters in Oslo. So... That detonated, eight people were killed. And as people were investigating that, he drove to this island and a fjord outside of Oslo where the Labour Party's youth party had their summer camp. He gets onto the island. He says, oh, a bomb went off in Oslo in the government headquarters. I'm here as security. He was posing as a cop. And then he started gunning down. He shot and killed 69 kids between the ages of, I think, the youngest was like 11. Um, and yeah, like you were talking about like the degrees of separation thing earlier. This is like a less fun degrees of separation, but in a country that only has 5 million Death people, like fun. yeah, everybody, everybody knows someone who knows somebody who was killed in the, who was killed or injured or, you know, lost their child. Um, wow. So this hits close to home for a lot of people there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, removing this sense of security that a lot of Europeans had before that, because this was in 2011. So it sort of coincided with the Arab Spring and the rise of ISIS and all of these terrorist attacks around Europe. So it just, yeah, it ushered in like an age of terrorism here um, that, you know, hasn't gone away. I think ISIS just sort of like fell off. I don't know. Someone needs to ISIS check really on them. Just disappeared. They like, fell off. That one tweet that's like ISIS and Fetty Wap owned that summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. ISIS and Fetty Wap owned summer 2017 or something. <laughs> they did. They were, yeah. Like, what are they doing these days? I want like a pop sugar like Snapchat video newsreel about like where are they now? <laughs> The ISIS boys. <laughs> the ISIS boys. It'll be like, killed in a drone strike, killed in a drone strike, killed in a drone strike. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's sort of the bummer answer to, I think, a lot of yeah, the questions no, I mean, asked. it puts things into context a lot. I didn't even know that you guys had uh, stuff like that that went down. I've heard about domestic terrorism anywhere else when people are trying to argue that one event happened and then they stopped all the guns and then everything was okay. Yeah, I feel like that's always how I hear about like European, like events like the Norway yeah. massacre or that that shooting that you mentioned in yeah. the UK. And like with the Norway massacre, like he obtained those guns illegally. He made his own bomb. What piece of legislation could possibly have prevented that. That's what I always figured, because it's like, if somebody's going to kill a bunch of people, which is obviously illegal, yeah. like, <laughs> why are they going to be like, oh, but I can't get the guns, because that's against the law. Yeah, no, it's like, even with Columbine, like, they did not get those guns legally. Even Eric Harris is, like, really smug about it in his diary. It's just like, how do you think we got ours? Try and change the laws, motherfuckers. It's like, he, he's kind of right you're more likely to think about killing a lot of people if you just have a gun laying around. Yeah, it's easier. It's like this thing of accessibility. Um, I try in, in my work to just look beyond that immediate accessibility and try and get to sort of like the root, the focal point of, of my thesis. It's Columbine in Oklahoma City. And with those kinds of attacks, you see a very specific kind of person committing them. So I'm looking at like, what does the gun mean to them? Why do they covet the gun? And how do you create a person who covets a gun like this? So you're looking at the gun kind of as a symbol. Yeah. So I do a lot of work on American myth and the sort of unifying national mythology that was shaped by like Western pop culture and, you know, America is a nation of immigrants and it doesn't have a shared ethnic or religious history to draw on. And the myth of the taming of the West is sort of essential to what being an American is. So national identity and national values are essentially built on this myth of violence, not necessarily like what historically happened, but how it was reproduced in like fiction and culture after the fact. I always thought like the cowboys and Indians thing they played at every summer camp is so insane. Yeah. So yeah, there's like this great quote that I like pulled up this historian called Richard Slotkin who wrote a really great book called Gunfighter Nation. And he says, what is distinctively American is not necessarily the amount or kind of violence that characterizes our history, but the mythic significance we have assigned to the kinds of violence we have actually experienced in the forms of symbolic violence we imagine or invent and the political uses to which we put that symbolism. 
Is that track? Yeah. Yeah. I even see that relating to some of what we talk about with like the paranoid way of American oh, politics. Oh, my favorite essay. I'm I'm sure you read it. The paranoid style of American politics. Richard Hofstadter writes how like all of American politics is just like people being really paranoid that people are out to get them. But also like indulging in the fantasy of having to defend yourself or yeah. being victimized or how so much of the American identity is built on this need to defend. And, and to be a victim and that like being right. a victim and defending yourself against Or being pushed to, to you. your limit. Yeah, is yeah. seen as like good or heroic. And we even see that with like the alpha conservative male mindset of like being pushed to your limit. Like needing yeah. to like... <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, what these people are doing is they're recontextualizing these very familiar American cultural values to justify acts of terrorism or violence. It's sort of like retrofitting the myth of the cowboy and the Indian or the outlaw and the Pinkertons to whatever situation you find yourself in. And it can mean whatever you want it to mean. And I really believe, as like these people have told us time and time over, is like, they think they're the good guys. They're the real patriots. Oh, fuck yeah. you. Yeah. They're going into it with the mindset of like, history will smile on me, not you, because they're the hero yeah. in that Western myth. It's so funny because so many of the people who use that argument are like, openly confederate people or have confederate ancestors that they honor and that's like history did remember and you're the bad guys well, the they bad think guys. that this is just like a little hiccup that's standing in between right. like the glorious rise right. of the confederacy right. once again right. yeah I was in upstate New York and I saw so many confederate flags and I was like your side won guys like why so switch bizarre. teams now you, you <laughs> never see that anywhere else where the people who like won a war will fly the flag of the people that yeah. lost the war. they think they're cooler. I have a really great primary source plug for what we're talking about right now. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of a guy who had some pretty funny ideas. And his name was Theodore Kaczynski. Oh. He was in the uh, Florence Supermax with Timothy McVeigh, and they were sort of like they were kind of gangbusters back there. Oh, yeah. They you sort were of like telling me about this when we met up that it was like the dream team because it was like the Unabomber and the World Trade McVeigh. Center bomber, the yes, first one, and the, and the Cuban gangster. Literally like dream blunt rotation. So, so he and Kaczynski would talk politics, and then. He and Ramsey Yosef would talk about bombs and then he and Louis Philippe would create pornography and then Ramsey Yosef would like spend day in and day out trying to convert everyone to Islam. And That's I'm just like, us. where is the sitcom? Where is the MASH type <laughs> sitcom our here? Group. <laughs> no, Every friend like, group has this guy. <laughs> I feel like that is like the insane schizopilled version of the fact that like Freud, Hitler and like fucking I, I don't know if it was like Lenin or Trotsky or something like all lived in Vienna in the same like summer of the same such year. such a lit summer. No, yeah. <laughs> Every girl group has like, one. So. Exactly. Um, Vienna summer take me back. <laughs> This is what the Billy Joel song's about. He wrote that song for a little girl named Adolf Hitler. Um, <laughs> no, so Lou Michelle, who interviewed Tim McVeigh for the McVeigh book, wrote to Ted Kaczynski at one point because he wanted Kaczynski's opinion on McVeigh. 
And Kaczynski wrote back and it was like a really good reflection on where McVeigh stood on the right. But he has this like anecdote. So Kaczynski says, Tim once asked me what kind of rifle I'd used for hunting in Montana. I'd said I'd had a 22 and a 30. On a later occasion, McVeigh mentioned that one of the advantages of a 30 was that one could get armor piercing ammunition for it. I said, so what would I need armor piercing ammunition for? In reply, McVeigh indicated that I might someday want to shoot a tank. Dot, dot, dot. I think McVeigh knew well that there was very little likelihood that I would ever need to shoot at a tank or that he would either <laughs> unless he rejoined the army. My speculative interpretation is that McVeigh resembles many people on the right who are attracted to powerful weapons for their own sake and independently of any likelihood that they will ever have a practical use for them. Such people tend to invent excuses, often far-fetched ones, for acquiring weapons for which they have no real need. Wow, that's honestly a great insight. I feel like that's so true. Like, you always see those right-wingers. Like, that tweet that's like, what if you have 30 to 60 feral hogs coming to your backyard? <laughs> yeah, because why does someone like, have 172 guns? You don't have if, 172 arms. You can't shoot them all at once, but they just want to have them all in case. Well, it's like what Tim McVeigh said. You never know. hogs. <laughs> you never know. You never know. You never know. I also don't understand is... The people that like have all these guns, but they're all locked up because there's so many guns and they're so intense. So it's like you have an intruder coming into your house and you're gonna be like, You're gonna welcome them into the artillery. <laughs> Let me get my 500 guns out real quick. But it's gonna take a minute. I think Just, I forgot I've, the password. I'm not sure which one is holding And the intruder is like, Turn I'm not here. Like, do your thing. Yeah, I think it's like because when we um, or at least when Europeans think of like American gun owners, they very much picture this kind of like buff jock type, like high school quarterback <laughs> type who married and like That's moved so to the suburbs. I feel like it's like freaks, like the freaks and like the old people. Oh, well, OK, I've been to Florida and there's a lot of jocks with guns. I mean, yeah, no, the jocks have guns, but they're not using the gun to compensate for anything. They like, already feel secure in their masculinity and don't need I to. I think we're giving jocks a lot of credit, assuming they're secure no, in their masculinity. Okay, a lot of them aren't, which is actually why they work out and are really good at sports. <laughs> it's their vehicle to feel empowered in their masculinity. I mean, guns are a part of the tradition of this country in many ways. And I think a lot of people just have them because you're given one when you're four and you're taught to use it. I mean, and I also think that's very true. I went to the gun range in Jacksonville and there was just like, three fathers with their third grade daughters and they were teaching them how to shoot and it was so awesome. I was like, I love this country. (laughs) Going to a gun range is shooting guns is so so fun. I personally love guns. I love shooting guns. I love watching people shoot guns. I think guns are fascinating and and a super intense, interesting power symbol. What you're specifically talking about is like people who covet guns right which is like people who kind of fetishize guns yeah it's like not sort of people who see the gun as like a given and like obviously i have this on my nightstand so that i can protect my beautiful wife when she's sleeping but then you have like these people in say the patriot movement or sort of like the nerd rage culture and like they covet the gun as an extension of themselves and as like the symbol of I may be physically weak, but when I have this, oh, you'll all know. You'll this is my dick. Like, yeah, it's like sexual for them. They don't take it for granted. 
either. And they were like, it's not a toy. I'm not just gonna go to the gun range and shoot it. What do you think? It's not a BB gun, but it is like, what you were saying, when I was still living in Bristol in England, I was watching a movie at my friend's house with like our other girlfriend. And then our friend's boyfriend comes in and he does a lot of paintball. So he comes in and he has all of his paintball guns and they're exact replicas of real guns. And he was holding them up and we were immediately all just like, fuck, that's cool. They look cool. And then you realize like, oh, this is why people like them is because they're cool. I shot an AR-15 at a gun range. It was super fun and so easy. And also, like, pro tip, like, if you're a woman from a blue state and you want to feel good about yourself and feel popular and loved, go to a red state, go to a gun range, tell them you've never shot a gun before in your life, (laughs) and you will become the most popular person in the room. It's like being Danny in Midsummer. It literally is. Like, (laughs) they were like, we're going to give you this lesson for free. Like, they're like, you're so beautiful, so open-minded yeah you're such a wonderful woman (laughs) um and it was so easy to shoot an AR-15 like it was so yeah it's like I feel like if we had a smart gun I feel like one of the software updates would be like it has like a geo tracker you can't shoot it inside of school there you go there's a solution yeah that actually would be Jot that down. Yeah. Bring that to Shark Tank. Yeah, but then like all the patriots will be like, the eye gun is gay. I don't know. I'm just like, I'm I'm trying as much as the next person to help. They they definitely would be like, but what if you only had an eye gun and then somebody was coming to school with a regular gun? (laughs) You needed to shoot them, but you couldn't because of your eye gun. That's why we can't have them. Okay, so the teachers have regular guns. They don't have eye gun. But the kids get eye guns. <laughs> kids get eye gun. We cracked it. That's perfect. We solved the gun problem. It's not hard. I don't know why everyone acts like it is. Um, the main focus of my thesis is contextualizing the rise of sort of like indiscriminate mass shootings in the United States within the context of domestic terrorism and historicizing it to a point where we understand where it came from. And that's obviously starting with Columbine. It's the one everyone copies, but it was also the most elaborate and most meticulously planned and very much intended as an act of terrorism. So I'm sort of like drawing that connection for people to understand that even if someone is, you know, mentally unstable or they commit an irrational, heinous act, it does not exist outside of history because there's very much this opinion among historians that crazy people don't exist in history. What does that mean? How? They're all <laughs> fucking crazy. Who says Yeah, that? no, when I started this work... All of my professors were like, well, how can you historicize Columbine? Those kids were mentally ill. And I'm like, yeah. And Hitler was totally normal and fine. He was normal. on meth all the time, like hiring astrologists to find Mussolini when he went missing. Yeah, mentally ill doesn't count. Is that what the rule is in academia? Also, like, historians are stuffy. They're pretentious, especially the British ones. They're like, history is old kings and queens and great fires. When I first started this work during my master's in history at the University of Bristol, 
people were pissed because they thought, first of all, that contextualizing something and historicizing it is the same as condoning it or being like, oh, yeah, it makes total sense that they did that. Again, so, are we condoning everything that's ever happened in history? What is history? <laughs> I think I might be confused. Is it just like a good boy chart of all the good things everyone ever did? All of the famously good kings. You know the ones. It's, um, right. Burger King. That's my only Yeah, one. The, that one. And even he's given me the shits a few times. Yeah. The crispy chicken's pretty good. So that was the backlash that I faced. Like, how were you able to convince him to let you write about this? Yeah, so the thing is, I submitted my dissertation proposal for my master's dissertation in May of 2022. And then two days later, Uvalde happens. And all of a sudden, everyone's really supportive because they've just been reminded that this is like an important thing to look at. But mass shootings exist in this world in which we only really talk or care about it if one has just happened because we don't have an historical context that brings them together within this sort of like greater canon of things. It's just like it happens it goes away and so on and so forth. Um, so after Uvalde, which is, I, I always feel like terrible for saying it because I'm not happy Uvalde happened, but people were really just like showing how hypocritical they were in that sense. And yeah, everyone was on board after that. Um, school shootings have become extremely generalized and homogenous in popular perspective of like it's always the same thing it's the same type of kid and it's the same type of school and it's always you know mental illness alienation bullies and they don't view columbine as any different from that there is like this narrative here and all thinking about like okay where did they get the idea to build all these bombs and to blow up their school how did these two kids learn how to commit like a paramilitary attack without any like military experience? Uh, like Timothy McVeigh and Eric Harris are extremely similar characters. Their attacks were similar. Yeah, I mean, so, but connections have been made between McVeigh and them before they were open about their inspiration. So why weren't your academic advisors quicker to let you bring that forth? I feel like the cultural context of what happened is pretty obvious. Um, there's one oral testimony of Eric Harris talking about Oklahoma City and like one mention of it in the written evidence. But other than that, they did not explicitly talk about Oklahoma City, but what I've discovered and what I'm currently writing a paper on is that Timothy McVeigh talked about Columbine a lot and really saw himself in the, in the killers. And he had a lot of thoughts on that, um, which I actually can't say. Is it secret? It's because I went to the American Terrorist Archive where all of his interviews and letters and everything were stored. Um, God, that sounds like such a good date. <laughs> yeah, that literally. I would love to bring someone really hot to the American Terrorist Archive. <laughs> it was just me alone. Sadly. No, not sadly. The ghost of Tim McVeigh was there. He was over my shoulder the whole time, but not in a sex way. No, the thing is that, like, I was granted access to archives strictly for, you know, 
scholarly purposes, um, so I can't openly talk about it. But the thing is, when I publish my paper, it'll be out academically, and then everyone can read it. So. Well, you'll tell us how to access that when it does happen. Oh, yeah, I'll just send it to you. But anyway, yeah, even with... Timothy McVeigh, you know, he also exists in this larger tradition of a change in political violence. You know, you don't see a lot of, other than like fucking Shinzo Abe, you don't see a lot of people just assassinating the president anymore. Really? You, you see really people, don't. You really, you really don't. don't. And it would be so easy to, you could kill Joe Biden with a dart. And nothing's <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> like you can't. Uh. I'm, so I'm, why did we lose the good old boys? What happened? Where, the what? invention of the Secret Service. They were like, maybe they, we shouldn't have our president stand up in an open top car and like a crowd of people <laughs> waving. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't put him on top of a pillar. <laughs> just standing. Just like put him in the open air. <laughs> we should stop painting a target on his head. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at these pictures of LBJ when he like visited my hometown in northern Norway. This is like summer 1963 when he was still vice president again like convertible he's standing he's waving i'm <laughs> like out if i were there with the smart shocked. gun <laughs> yeah you're not as long as he wasn't in front of a school if yeah, he has the eye gun it's legal you could do it it's kosher it's kosher <laughs> is it eye gun or smart gun it's both Oh, iGun is the Apple version. Smart gun is Smart Android. gun is Android. Okay, got it. Got it. <laughs> Google gun. gun. If I text you on an iGun, you get a green. Bubble. I get a green. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the smart gun has like different emojis. I feel like the sound that it would make would be so embarrassing if it wasn't an iGun. <laughs> <It'd be> like, <laughs> I feel like, damn, you're a smart gun. Like I couldn't afford an iGun. <laughs> There would so. be so much sectarianism between iGun and smart gun. It's going to be. You'd be like, well, that shooting happened with a smart gun, not an iGun. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm mad about like the restrictions on the archive because, like, believe you me, there was so much funny shit in there. Someone once said they were like, you talk about Eric and Dylan like they're your ex-boyfriends, and I go, like, no, I think I talk about them like they're my boyfriends. Um, same goes for Tim, but I'm just like. What else can I do? I have to spend so much fucking time so with this time shit. With them. Like I feel <laughs> that way about Nick Fuentes. Like I'm in such a like I talk about him like I'm friends with him and I like truly like I always say like I could make him come out. <laughs> like <laughs> crack the egg that is Nick Fuentes if he came and gave us a few minutes. Exactly. Give me 24 hours and some ketamine, I could do it. So like why are you interested in domestic terrorism? What kind of person gets this interested in domestic terrorism? <laughs> And I'm asking because I've we're I've, both that I've we're been, all that people. I've been that girl, you know, and I am that girl. I would go to the New York Public Library, go on the microforms, like take the film scans of newspapers from the '90s, and like read them after school every day, like a normal girl does. Well, you already know all my like stress dreams about like going back in time and trying to stop Columbine. Um, <laughs> oh, is that a recurring thing for you? Yeah, when I'm in Colorado or something, like, doing field research, like, I'll have those nightmares. Is that, like, is that indicative of, like, the morbid curiosity? Or is it, like, that you feel a sense of control in, like, researching all of this? I think my subconscious is just, like, damn, you should have stopped Columbine. And I was, like, I was one. Hey, <laughs> did you try, though? <laughs> this, yeah, I guess I didn't fucking try. No one told me what was happening. Um... 
Yeah, I yeah, I know I have these stress dreams and it's always like trying to infiltrate Eric's friend group or something. When I was reading about it, I it got to the point where like he was listening to Evanescence. Like I was listening to Evanescence. Like I was listening to KMFDM because he was listening to KMFDM. I was. Li- I discovered KMFDM because of them. They introduced me to KMFDM. Yeah. Who didn't? You know, so it, yeah, it got to, they were honestly the best PR for that band, I'm sure. And oh, like, yeah. I, I found myself being like, you know, I could have probably been friends with them. And maybe if I, and it became that weird pick me girl thing where even though I didn't have an attraction to them, like the other Columbine fan girls, there's something that like twists in the mind I think of any girl who's into like incel culture where you're just like, but I could fix you. I'm like, different. I am different. Like, you know, yeah. That's literally what I was just saying about Nick Fuentes. Yeah. I was literally yeah. just like, no, I'm different. I could make him come so out. So is that just like the, the female <laughs> urge to just like fix the wounds of society? Why are you like this? Like I think it's just a consequence of having to, to work with it and sort of, yeah, dedicate my like professional life to it. Um, but why do you and want to dedicate your professional life to it? I, that's a good question. It just sort of happened. My first master's degree was in film and television. My thesis in that was approaches to moral lessons in American family entertainment from like the 70s to the 90s and sort of how TV, sitcoms and stuff covered social issues. That's For awesome. the 90s part of it, I was talking about like juvenile delinquency and gun violence so I was, you know, doing a lot of research on Columbine and that's how I realized that there was literally like no historical academic scholarship on it because it all really exists within the realm of either true crime or medicine. And I'm not a doctor and true crime is not a reliable historical source. I'm always saying that it's like akin to writing a book about the Vietnam War and your only source is like fucking Forrest Gump. So I realized that there was this like really crucial gap in it. And I decided to pursue a master's in history also because I realized that what I was really interested in, in terms of like pop culture was like its historical significance. And I just consider this like an important gap to fill within the literature. So that's what I wanted to pursue. And, you know, you dig a little deeper and all of a sudden, you know, this becomes like your niche. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Do you ever feel like it's harmful to fixate on something like this? Because also you're just like a person in the world. You're not just an academic in a vacuum. Yeah, in Denver, I actually met the manager of the Counterterrorism Education Learning Center and we got to talking and he asked me that same question. It's like, how does this not drive you insane? Because apparently he worked part-time at the cell and then part-time at the Holocaust Museum. And I'm like, no, dude, your job is worse. Pick one. Yeah, he's like a masochist. Um, But... I was telling him I spent three days in upstate New York sitting in like a basement listening to Timothy McVeigh talk and he was talking on those tapes to a man that I know now and that I've met and that I really like and respect and I was so struck by like how normal and how congenial he sounds and really overwhelmed by like all the information I was putting down and so struck by every time I realized like this guy killed 168 people in cold blood 170 if you count those two Iraqis which no one does but I went up to Buffalo and then I got like uh, a night bus to New York City and my whole first day in, in New York I was just like why am I so cranky why am I so moody? And then I realized what I'd spent the past three days doing and it all made sense. And I realized that I just needed to like decompress 
And part of how I decompress is just I have a lot of good friends who also happen to be like interested in this kind of thing. So like they want to hear me talk about it. But you know, it is hard. I remember my first day at the University of Glasgow. It was like an orientation meeting for all the new like history postgraduates. And the head of the history department was talking to all of the other kids who were doing like medieval and early modern Scottish history. And he was like, guys, you guys are going to have so much fun. It's an excellent community. We have so many resources for you. You have such fun topics. And then he looks at me and he just goes like, and Susie, here's a detailed list of everyone in this department who's killed themselves because their research was so upsetting. And I was like, dude, it's my first day. Whoa. Um, So I can't really kill myself because, like, then I'd prove his point. Yeah. Yeah. You got to buck up. Yeah. So I think that there's kind of a a thread here of, like, with all three of us of just, like, I think we're all just really struck by the banality of evil with these people. Mm. I think we almost, like relate ourselves to them in a way or like yeah like, I mean I because it's like we're smart people who feel outcasted maybe for being smart and being interested in weird events because they were also just like interested in weird events yeah. okay I'm fucking crazy too and I don't want to do that shit you fucking psycho but like I get you and I get your writing and like I see you <laughs> like but I why did you do that like it's like watching like like that that thin line just break yeah, because like I, yeah, I think we all are just kind of shocked by how much we are like them. That's I'm kind like of them what I've if gathered. they were like a girl who was really hot and just like had a lot of sex and was normal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Me too. I'm saying so. Um, yeah, it's just like at the end of the day, it's crazy what no pussy does to a motherfucker. Yeah. A question. When I was getting no pussy, like then that really was me. Yeah, I remember. I was worried. I was about like, you. I'm this close. Yeah, you. <laughs> You were that close. You were like, oh, hell, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was, I think, bearing the, like, scars of, in hindsight, what were just, like, really stupid things that happened to me when I was a kid, um, which... I think definitely enable that like morbid curiosity at the time. I think the field of history is inherently very voyeuristic. I think digging through the history of people who are dead has this obvious element of like voyeurism to it. Not necessarily that it like gets you off, but everyone's like attracted to this sort of like it's technically forbidden and it's technically none of my business. Um, That is very much the vibe that it's like an unspoken agreement with people who are interested in this kind of thing. That's like, yeah, yeah, like it's bad. We shouldn't be talking about it or giving it that much attention. But anyway. But anyway, let's talk about them like their TV characters. You told me about how Tim McVeigh lost his virginity. He was 17 and working at a Burger King in Lockport, New York. He was doing the closing shift with this... um, Beautiful married woman in her 30s. I don't know if she was beautiful. I mean, he was 17. She didn't have to be beautiful. Um, His dad was working late. They were like, let's do it. They go back to his place. And then the thing that really stuck with him that he really remembers is that she goes, I love to fuck. Oh. (laughs) Oh, okay. Hmm. He also remarked that their 30s are when women are their horniest. 
I could see that. And that also goes back to relating yourself to these people because I was like, I love MILFs too. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like him. One of my friends that I was meeting up with in in New York asked me like, what do you think Columbine sticks out as like sort of the most popular one? And at first I was saying like it has sort of like this very distinct style and iconography to it, which is true. And then I was also thinking like, because there were two of them, it's sort of like a boy band effect. Um, there's the there's the bold kind of douchebaggy one, and then there's the one that likes to write. It's like a the bit shy more. one, yeah. I mean, I guess just because like the brain when you learn about something narratively, you kind of try to place yourself in it, or at least I, yeah. Do, you know, so like trying to see like what kind of a kid is this person, like you know. Yeah the one that kind of seems like popular loner syndrome or the one that's like more self-involved. Like these are archetypes that we kind of see in movies and stuff. And I think that plays to that boy band effect you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like you can place them in these, you know, very familiar stereotypes that we all know from culture. Um, I have to talk about true crime a lot for my thesis, even though like I don't like the culture of true crime. I don't like how big it's gotten and how desensitized we've become to it. I think true crime can be really disgusting. Like I, I hate it. When when my ex would like do her makeup and listen to that shit, I'm like, they what her eyes? Yeah. Like, turn that off. Yeah, no, you literally have like like girls on YouTube who like their whole thing is that like they do their makeup and talk about heinous murders. And I think yeah. because true crime culture is overwhelmingly female. A lot of yeah. women will use this excuse of like this empowers me because it could happen to me and therefore I'm allowed to consume it. But I think it's not like, oh, it could happen to me. It's that like voyeuristic thrill of like, it didn't happen to me. It happened to someone else and I can like morbidly enjoy it. And I just think it's like, right. It's, but it's also kind of like the girl version of the gun thing we were talking about earlier where it's like, it might happen to me though and I'm ready if it does. Like that woman who has like the binder of all of her DNA on TikTok and she (laughs) saves her DNA in case she ever gets true crimed and they need to like match her hair and her fingerprints and all of that. It's like, they do it like it's journaling. Yeah. It's like how Tim McVeigh talks about survivalism. Like, it's a hobby. He's like, well, some people collect stamps. Why is my thing weird? And I'm like, people don't hate you because you were a survivalist. People hate you for that other thing you did. (laughs) And especially, like, removing, I think, the power or, like, the monopoly true crime has over, like, violent history because you have, like, actual academics who only use Dave Collins' Columbine as a reference in like Mm -hmm. the journal of psychiatry or the journal of American history. And again, it's the like using Forrest Gump as your only source thing. This is a piece of true crime. You can't really like, there needs to be academic scholarship on it. And there needs to be like a reliable account of it. And I hope to be able to do that um, Mm. so that we can remove it from consumer culture and into like a genuine preventative effort within academia. Right. Also, like, you know, we're talking a lot about these people who kind of make light and make jokes about these events online. But like we are literally making so many jokes about this online right now. We are like the kind of people that are like morbidly fascinated with these things, but like not in a true crime way and not in that like quasi sexual way that some (laughs) girls are fascinated with it. But in this like secret third way that we're not quite sure. I think we're making fun of ourselves. 
No, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, we are. It's true, but but the line gets blurred when you're so close to your work, and when there is this stake that we all have in it, because this kind of thing is happening currently as a result of everything we're learning about, and we have whatever relation we do to it that keeps us involved because there are plenty of people who are scared of gun violence who don't give a fuck about this stuff you know that's why I kind of like I've been bringing it back to like why are we this way like why we don't seem to be scared of it too like all three of us seem to be super against guns I think when I got really deep into it it got to a point where I wasn't I was in high school when I was really into all of this so I was kind of like it got to a point where I did find myself like looking where all the exits were and then when we were in the auditorium for an assembly thinking like this is the perfect place like we could all die right I here thought that too and like looking auditorium. around and then like finding myself looking around planning the perfect school shooting so that I could maybe escape the school shooting if it happened <laughs> to be and a then step ahead thinking yeah and then thinking like wait but I'm the only one sitting here right now like planning a school shooting at all like <laughs> this is crazy it's infecting my brain like am I gonna like I actually got to a point where I was consuming way too much of this to the point where I've, I've started Feeling kind of fucking crazy and like paranoid and like, am I bad? Am I good? Like, I started questioning my own morals about it. And honestly, whenever I watch a movie or a TV show that has like a well done depiction of um, a school shooting, I cry. So I, I can't I even watch them. those. Yeah, I like, can't I watch those realize, at all. I watched the one with Jenna Ortega because I saw there's a lesbian moment with her and Maddie Ziegler in an edit on TikTok, and I did not know what the movie was about. I just thought it was a lesbian movie with Jenna Ortega in it. So my dismay when they were uh, all getting shot at, and I didn't even realize I had a complex about that. But yeah, I think it's. I think. I think it actually all might be because of fear. Maybe. When I was in Denver, I had a day where I didn't really have anything going on. I didn't have any like work that I had to do or anything. So I decided I was going to go see Barbie. Um, and then I figured this might as well double as research. I'm going to go see Barbie at the Century 16 in Aurora. That one. Wow. Where the Dark Knight Rises shooting was because... That's a very um, white thing that you did. What if it happened again? When these things occur, either, you know, it's in a place where you can't really, like, enter it. Like, you can't just, like, <laughs> go into, like, a public high school. And a lot of the time, you know, these places are demolished. So I was interested to see where is this place today as a place that's been immortalized as the most infamous movie theater in probably the world how are they, you know, remembering that while people are still, you know, actively attending and using the space. So I go there and it's a beautiful theater. I think it's all like local art now. They've renamed it to just like Century Aurora. And it is probably the safest movie theater in the world. You know, armed guards outside because there's always that thought of like lightning can't strike twice in the same place. But I think the scars that they had from what happened has just... Lightning doesn't strike twice, but some fanatic who wants to replicate what happened there could happen. We have a friend that works at the World Trade Center. She works like a minimum wage job in a random store that just is in the mall in the World Trade Center. And she's like, if I lose my ID, I could get arrested because obviously the security is tight. And even when I was at at the theater, like inside, I was watching Barbie the whole time. I was so anxious and just hyper aware of all of the ways in which the world could kill me right now. And that's not, you know, a good way to be. 
I don't think that's exclusive to me. When I was at Pride this past year. I was thinking that too because yeah. I remember somebody said there was gunshots. Well, no, we were, so basically like we're all sitting on the lawn in Washington Square Park and someone starts like, I guess, shooting fireworks at each other, like, you know, as a joke. Yeah. I don't know. And... I mean, it didn't sound to me like gunshots, but there were police there because like a bunch of random yeah. fights broke out and then someone started shooting fireworks at someone. So like, obviously, like, I guess people thought that there was a gun issue and everyone just like picked up and bolted and ran. And like, I knew that nobody was getting shot. But even if, if you had stayed and not ran, you would have just gotten like crushed. Like I yeah. saw some mutuals of mine afterwards who all said that they stayed sitting and they got trampled. Like, so Jesus. whether or not you're actually scared, you still have to react the same way anybody does. It was mostly sad for me to see like everybody so horrified and like screaming and running because you just don't know. When we were talking about how there aren't really like political assassinations anymore because people drew inspiration from Northern Ireland in part and these Islamic insurgencies and you know, Afghanistan and everything in the 1970s and 80s. And they realize that the most efficient way, the real way to commit warfare now is to incite fear and terror in everyday life. And this was a big thing among the white power movement in the United States. And they dropped like this organized new manifesto about it. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Turner Diaries. Oh, of course I'm familiar with the Turner Diaries. Yeah, so, yeah, the Turner Diaries, again, like, it's just a recipe book for, you know, how to commit terrorism. Can you actually just explain what the Turner Diaries are real quick for the audience? Oh, yeah, it's a fiction. um, You can't see me doing air quotes on a podcast. It's a novel from late 1970s written by this random physics professor at Oregon State University. And it chronicles the life of a patriot living in post-racial America and it's just sort of like this apocalyptic vision of what a post-racial America is like and he and his fellow patriots again I'm doing air quotes I don't know why I keep doing that put together a militia and they conduct guerrilla warfare a lot of terrorist attacks and one of them you know shows Earl Turner the main character um detonating a bomb which it's the book has given very explicit, you know, instructions on how to build the bomb, the truck bomb, and detonating it outside a federal building. And that's how Timothy McVeigh got the inspiration to do that. Um, but it is the new modern form of, of political violence. And I don't think that fear is lost on anyone. Like what what differentiates an extremist who's interested in texts like that from somebody who's actually gonna do something from what you've researched? Um, well, first, yeah, I think I have to differentiate between you know people who commit these things in, in the name of you know political violence and you know people who sort of are just like shooting indiscriminately and I can't really speak on, you know, what their motivations are because I'm not familiar with a lot of those cases in depth and I'm also not a doctor. A lot of historians like to think that they're shrinks, but I'm not. I think the budding domestic terrorists within an extremist groups are, first of all, they're extremely militant. A lot of them are former veterans, or at least this was the case in like post-Vietnam and also like post 
South American proxy wars and Desert Storm. They're veterans. I also know that um, a lot of the veterans from World War One in Germany were the ones who were active in being Nazi street fighters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you have it. So they ha- either have military experience or there's someone like Eric Harris who's just fucking obsessed with this idea of being a soldier because they've consumed so much like military culture and they're capable of doing this is what Timothy McVeigh is always saying about like his attack. He's like, I had to turn my feelings off. It was war. I was committing an act of war. Why should I feel bad? It was an act of war. And like Eric Harris says, you know, very similar things, except he uses the language of like, I have to pretend like I'm in doom. I have to turn off my feelings, which again is that sort of like militant culture that I'm pointing towards. But these militant young men and also people who have adopted extremely apocalyptic views. Um, I was thinking about when you were talking about gun control, like whether or not like I'm for or against it. And like, I'm not and necessarily like anti-gun control it's just that i've reached a point where i don't think it's possible because the second amendment is so deeply ingrained in like u.s history and its fundamental values and to reject the gun is essentially acknowledging that national mythology is inherently wrong and what Mm -hmm. liberals like don't understand about the patriot movement is that they interpret the constitution through this like radical evangelical reading. And so they treat like the second amendment say as like a religious text and any action the government commits or sort of like the liberals or whatever is retrofitted in a way where it confirms that text. And they're actively looking for these events that confirm that, you know, the rapture is coming in the Turner Diaries, there's like the day yeah. of the rope, which is like the yeah. day of reckoning, kind of this like rapture sort of situation. Yeah. It's the race war in the book, but like there's always something like that, especially because of the Venn diagram between people on the far right and the right in America and evangelical Christians who like really do believe that a bit. I literally like is my notes literally say Venn diagram. And even if they're not like, they don't have to be religious, but they do have this evangelical influence of this premillennialist mindset where you have a text that you covet and it is the only truth and everything that happens, sort of any event is just a sign that confirms what you already believe So basically, when you have a country that's trying to breed people into becoming devout Christian soldiers, but these people have a severe lack of trust for the government, it's like kind of the ultimate fuck you dad, and they just want to commit domestic terrorism because they don't have a strong sense of masculine identity or American identity, and they just connect to the parts of America and masculinity that are like the most addictive, which is ironically exactly what they're meant to do, except they're they're doing it in the opposite direction. So it's like with McVeigh, like he wasn't religious, but he read events like Ruby Ridge or Waco and the Brady Bill as like, mm. oh, this is it. This is a call to arms because the government, it's tyranny. It's just like what the Second Amendment was made for to protect yourself against the government. Um, which is why, like, I don't think you could ever possibly ban guns outright because that is exactly what they are preparing for. And that is doing a very dangerous thing. And then someone will ask me, like, well, 
what do you propose we do? And I say, I don't know. I'm just an historian. <laughs> nice. You get Smart. the tap out yeah. button. <laughs> if there's not going to be like a judgment day, then what is going to happen with all of this domestic terrorism nonsense? <laughs> I'm just an historian. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs> I think... We're going to be at a stalemate if, like, every single time there's, like, a particularly... I mean, all mass shootings are heinous, but I'm thinking of the ones that... You know, like, something like Sandy Hook, and that was over 10 years ago. Everyone was saying, this is it. This is the big ones. We're finally going to get gun reforms. And they did, like, some minor things, just sort of, like... Tighten a couple screws. Yeah, superficial <laughs> things. But nothing really. And like, it's going mean, to stay. You can't really do anything except for ban them. It doesn't, anything else doesn't really. If they're still being pushed through our commerce, people yeah. will still get their hands on them illegally. Like, it would have to be completely restricted. And ch- the narrative of guns in this country would have to be changed for people and also, considering them an option. And also a major problem that I've identified with American liberals is the knee-jerk reaction to a mass shooting is always like the safety blanket of like tweeting like hashtag gun control or like attending a march or just like hiding behind this piece of legislation that you realistically know is not going to go through. They love doing shit like that. Yeah. It's a symbolic gesture but it's not going to do anything in the way of preventing gun violence because you just know that it's not going to happen. Are we just fucked? Is it over? Is this the nature of America until we fall in on ourselves? Are they right? Is there going to be just like a final judgment day? I think everyone since the dawn of man has firmly believed that they lived in end times. I agree. Yeah. I see it so much especially with people that I researched in the late 1990s apocalypse as we know it kind of started in the late 1800s because the term apocalypse it's a Greek Mm -hmm. word and it had just meant like the uncovering of new enlightenment I don't think it became as big of a part of a cultural narrative to be worried about the end of the world until it started to become a cool media trope that people started to play with and then realized they could fear monger with. I think the world has ended for certain groups of people. Like indigenous people have faced their own kind of apocalypse. I mean, I, I do There's think a, that like there were some times where people thought it was end times and they were right. And they were right, yeah. Like but, during the Black Death when right. people would like go, God is dead. Like, yeah, I yeah. would say that too if I was living through right. the Black Death. That's You're right about the 1800s in terms of like Western Christianity, but um, there has always been among all culture an end times tradition that's not necessarily tied to the Christian or, you know, Judeo-Christian or Islamic rapture, but always this belief that it's kind of like cultural main character syndrome and that you know, obviously the world's going to end when I'm here. With the invention of like the calendar and numerical systems and even before that, there's evidence among all cultures that people always think that they live in end times. The Mesopotamians and like Zoroaster also carried like a pretty great tradition with that. There's a great book about it called The End of Time by Damien Thompson. He wrote that in 1995 to sort of like ease people's nerves about the upcoming new millennium. I have my uh, millennium beanie baby. It's actually the McDonald's teeny baby. Oh, 
I so love cute. that. It was given to McDonald's employees in the year 2000 to thank them Aww. for working through the Teeny Babies campaign. Is that for the little Y2K bear? I also have 1999, the bear. Aww. Oh my God, he is really cute. That's a good bear. But it sort of tracks this whole history of the end. I think it's a very natural impulse for people. Um, the one thing that gives me comfort every time I'm like freaking out about the state of the world, I always think like, well, we thought this 10 years ago. We thought this 20 years ago. There is always an after is what I say. There's always a post-apocalypse. Like no matter what happens, something's going to happen after and the world will in some way carry on because it just sort of has to and we're gonna get used to it i don't know if that's like a like a positive <laughs> note think, to end no, on no, a, i think it's a great i adopt a similar mentality yeah do you want to uh tell everybody where to find your thesis when it's out where to find you if you want to be contacted yeah yeah no totally um yeah, I really don't mind anyone wants to like reach out about anything. You can tag me on this on Instagram. For yes. sure. I really like, I'm not secretive about what I do. I'm very passionate about what I do. And I hope that it's going somewhere and I hope that it ends up like mattering in the end. But um, it will matter. I think it will. It will matter. I think end. you're doing really good work. It matters already. Yeah. And if the Journal of American History rejects my paper, you guys can post it on your Patreon. Fuck yeah. Yes. <laughs> nice. Do you, do you have any idea when it's going to be out? Um, I think I finish in like late 2025. Okay. So not that long. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's like I said, I'm I never glad. show up. And um, yeah, my smart gun has just got through charging. <laughs> no. Wait, no. I don't have a smart gun. I have eye gun. Time to play. Let's try to shoot each other. Yay. I'm going to go to the vacant lot outside. Guns are awesome. And gun violence is bad. And both things are true. And with that, thank you guys for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at What's Gonna Happen Pod or on Twitter at WGH Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon where we take requests for episode topics, Q&As, and post bonus episodes every once in a while. And from the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, <laughs> this has been What's Gonna Happen. Yeah.